You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. All right, y'all know the drill. Exodus, another chapter. Exodus chapter 32. Man, we're getting close to the end, but we're not there yet. Praise God. We're in a series called God Redeems. And tonight we're in a familiar story of the Israelites making a golden calf of worship, to worship. We've, um, man, we've been studying this glorious section of Moses on Mount Sinai, getting the instructions from God, um, and really how to worship him. I think we can get lost in that. Exodus 24 through 31 are just the instructions of the tabernacle. See, in the very end of this, they're going to actually erect that and build that. But it's God setting up a sacrificial system, the priesthood, how God wants to be worshipped and dwell with his people. And I love this. Last week we finished 31, verse 18. We pick up 32. Verse 18 in chapter 31, it says, And he, God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with, on, uh, with him on Mount Sinai, two tablets of the testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. We believe that God's scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, perfect and palpable, just written by God that God wants to speak to us and he wanted to speak to his people. And so he's speaking it, but he's writing it down. The text tells us that Moses has been up in this mountain for only 40 days and 40 nights in fellowship with God, receiving this part of the revelation. It was truly a mountaintop experience. You know what I'm saying? Like you're meeting with God. This is Moses' camp. He's with the Lord. It's a mountaintop experience. Things are going great, and he gets interrupted by the reality of sin. That, that, this is what we're going to talk about tonight. God's people disobeying the commands of God. And this chapter actually shows us an important principle that we as humans are unable to keep God's law, and we're sinners. This is a fact that we need to go over and over and over again and be reminded that we need God's grace and his mercy to atone for our sin. The very fact that God in his prophetic wisdom is actually setting up a sacrificial system and wanting to meet with them and building a tabernacle is actually proven again right here in this chapter. Tabernacle's not built yet. Moses on the mountain, second time, getting the glorious instruction. God has a good future for them and they are about to botch it Big time. Okay? So let's read verse 1 through 6, and then I just want to pray again, cover the message over the prayer, and um, we'll get right into it. There's a lot to cover tonight. Lord Jesus, help us. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, that's where he was, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early in the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let's pray again. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. This is the written word of God. It is stand generation upon generation, Lord. Not a dot or iota will be taken away. Heaven and earth will pass, but your word will remain forever. Let us be men and women of your word. Anoint my lips to preach your word. These eternal truths that you continue want to speak through your peop- to your people, Lord, through your word. We study and we worship through studying your word and hearing your voice. Let us be good sheep that hear your voice. Let us be sensitive to your spirit. Speak to us, God, tonight. Jesus, be elevated. May we celebrate in the gospel that we have good news in you and that you're a God that, in the midst of our sin, reaches out and still loves us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would anoint these words 
and our study as we go through this chapter. Thank you, God, for this series. Thank you, God, that we could take time and dig deep and listen and just enjoy your grace and receive it tonight through your word. And we ask this and we pray this in your precious name, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. The golden calf, Exodus chapter 32. There you have it. It's another picture of how horrible sin nature is. This is what this chapter is all about. As humans, we rebel against God and really are truly, horrifically, this bad. Now, you may know the verses. The Bible declares that all humans, we're all sinners, we all fall short of God's glory, but here in this text, we're about to see this doctrine play out, flesh out, a story, a picture of depravity and rebellion. The Israelites, just after seeing the mighty hand of God, free them from Egypt. Let me give you a recap. Help them cross the Red Sea. Oh yeah, they get, God gave them bread from heaven called manna. He actually met with Moses on Mount Sinai, had the thunder and lightning. Everyone knew God was there. Meanwhile, he was still guiding them with a the pillar of cloud and fire. They rebel against this God who did all of this good work in this moment by creating an idol, a golden calf. Now what you have to realize is we have been studying the book of Exodus longer than they have actually been free. Scholars say this is only about three to four months. Moses had already gone to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the second round. A hundred days or less, they were slaves. Think about that. Because we've been so in the details and nicking and just... In the, think about how Moses' mind is in the mountaintop, in the glory, experiencing, writing things down, listening to all the future, the prophetic plans. And yet, the flesh is creeping out and it is real, and it is alive, and they rebel against God. And I use this word rebel on purpose because they weren't ignorant of God and what he's done, but they also weren't ignorant of his word. Moses had already been going up and down the mountain and went up in the mountain a time before this. You remember in Exodus 19 when they first met God on the mountain, and God gave them what? The law. Y'all know it, Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, we read the very first commandment, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. Now, just to clarify what God meant and what he said, the second command gives us some clarity in verses 4 and 5 and says, you shall not make yourself a carved image or anything like or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath you shall not bow to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God am a jealous God they had heard those words they had confirmed that covenant and they actually at least we know in the text three times in the months at Mount Sinai the Israelites promise to obey these words. Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, we're going to do it. Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, after they got it, we're going to do it. Matter of fact, let me just say it again. We're going to do it. Verse 7 of that chapter. They continually said, we promise to obey whatever the Lord has told us. So he gives the ordinances. He gives us the law. And God knew in his forbearance and sovereignty, Deuteronomy 5, 28 and 9, he knew what was in man's heart. And he knew what was in these people's heart. Even though they promised with their lips, their heart was corrupt and they wouldn't be able to fill the promises because he knew the law was to reveal what was actually in man, a sin nature. And at the golden calf, in this text, it shows us the depravity of man and how we are enslaved to sin. That we desire something, we could say something, but we are caught up and they are now literally worshiping a golden calf breaking the law. And it just seems, it seems ridiculous and foolish, doesn't it? Like, I think we all look at like, okay, if I cross the Red Sea, maybe that would help me obey God more. I mean, if I saw a pillar of fire, maybe not cloud, but fire in the sky, I totally would be guiding God. God. I just obey him so much. But in verse four, think about how foolishness this is and their sin showing themselves. They say, these are your gods, O Israel, 
Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? Verse 3 tells us they just built that God. That's how foolish and weird sin can make you act and think. This God, our idol, didn't even exist when they were being free from Egypt. They built this God with their hands and now are saying, but this is the person that did it. Okay. Isaiah 44 talks about this foolishness and God over and over again biblically rebukes people for doing this and talks about the foolishness of idolatry, how people take wood and with half of it, they'll burn it for fire and get warm, but then the other half, they'll worship it. It's crazy. Listen to what Psalm 115, 4-8 says. And their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. And they have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become what you worship. And you see what the Israelites were was happening right now is they weren't trusting God in this moment. It's a, it's a lapse of faith, of unbelief, and that is sin. It's not just crossing a line, it's doubt. It's, it, it, they had, this was a heart issue of trust. This is a heart issue of trust because Moses was on the mountain and they got impatient. They didn't want to wait for him or God's timing. Sound familiar? You ever been there before? Frustrated on waiting, especially waiting on the Lord? Like we have verses, wait on the Lord, man. He'll renew your strength. You're like, I'm going to sin because I don't want to trust him right now. We never say that, but we act it out. And we take things in our own strength and our own ability or we trust something else. And there is a really, really, really good reason we read of the delay. Hello, the word of God was being received to embrace them, to meet with them, to build the tabernacle, all this glorious stuff we've been studying. There was a reason for the delay so they can actually get the word of God, know how to properly worship him, but they didn't see it with their eyes and they didn't live by faith and they got impatient. Psalm 106, 21 and 22, they say, it says they forgot God and his grace. And so this becomes a test of faith for them. A test of faith. Because it was an issue of their heart. David Guzik says this, how we handle God-ordained delays is a good measure of our spiritual maturity. If we allow such delays to make us drift into sin or lapse into resignation to faith, well, then we react poorly to his ordained delays. But if we allow such to deepen our perseverance in following God, then they are of good use. What do you do when you get delayed? How are you worshiping God? How are you using those delays? God, in this moment, the text says he was angry. He was upset. Just like you can grieve the Holy Spirit, the person, third person of the Trinity, God was grieved. He was angered that this happened. And Deuteronomy 9 gives a retelling of this story. Deuteronomy 9 verse 8, God says that he was ready to destroy them, the people. God said that they acted corruptly, Deuteronomy 9 12 says. The text says that they had turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them because God had given them the law. They weren't ignorant and they had made themselves a metal image. I was reading Warren Wiersbe, and he said, impatience is often the cause of impulsive actions that are sinful. Have you found that to be true? Impatience is often the cause of impulsive actions that are sinful. So even though the Bible declares idolatry to be sin, to be foolish, we as humans still do it. We're enslaved. We're enslaved to sin. This is the condition of our heart. We were made to worship, but when, when sin entered in through Adam, it reoriented everything in our nature. We're broken. So now in our sin, we still worship, but we worship all types of other things besides the true and living God. And this is what's happening here. God is showing us what humanity's heart is capable of doing and often does. Tony Murtis said that even though the people had gotten out of Egypt... Egypt remained in the people. 
They were still in that culture, in that worldly mindset. And this is the human heart. This is the issue, just not a conditional issue. You know what I mean? Like a conditional issue. You see, see many people think that if there is a, if there is a utopia culture or society, things will be okay. Like people, they're, they're really pretty good inside. It's, it's, their, it's their environment. It's their culture. It's their family. It's society that makes people bad. And the Bible declares this is flat out a lie. It's just flat out not true. Our nature rebels against God. Ephesians 2.2 says we're sons of disobedience. David, when he sinned and had to confess, Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3.9 said, There is no one good, not one, and we all have been born into this nature. In fact, Laura, I was talking to her this week, she's chronologically reading through the Bible, uh, and so she's in the Old Testament a lot right now. And she had mentioned something to me, a little statement, and I was just like, yeah. That's true. She's just like, ah, it is so depressing reading through all of these stories. And I was like, yeah, pretty much. Because they're a case study. It really is how people fail over and over and over and over again. Because in the Old Testament and in our lives, when the focus is on our ability, it's a case study to show us our strength, which fails us. Because oftentimes we can even put ourselves in the place of God as an idol. And it shows us the fruit of sin. You are what you worship. Or like Isaiah 44, 9, that glorious chapter talking about the foolishness of idolatry. The Lord said, all who, forsake, or all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. We need to be reminded that, like Jeremiah 17, 9, that our heart is wicked and desperately sick, and that is the condition of humanity. And we need to be reminded that there is bad news to recognize and embrace the Savior and delight in the good news. This is why there's that great case study written so that we would have hope and, like a mirror, examine our own hearts. It gives, because God in his gospel gives us a new heart, he doesn't just make you better. He makes you new, a new creation. Well, Israelites were free from Egypt here, but they were still slaves to sin. And the Lord knew this problem, this sin problem. He knows our true conditions. He sees our hearts. And listen to what verse 7 and 9 tell us. And the Lord said to Moses, Now go down, for your people whom you uh, brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They did this. They were responsible. You are responsible for your sin. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Did you know it's like a straight quote? God was on the mountain, but yet he saw the sin of hearts. Like when Jesus was saying people's hearts and the condition of man. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Verse 7 says, they corrupted themselves. This is what happens to you and I when we don't trust God. We corrupt ourselves. When we worship anything other than the true and living God, Yahweh, why? Because God calls them a stiff-necked people. Some translations say stubborn people. This phrase, one commentator said, is common in the Bible, and it's a farmer's metaphor of an ox or a horse that will not respond to the rope when tugged. Stiff-necked. You're going to do your thing and not obey a master, not submit. It leads us into a lot of trouble. Their hearts were bent for rebellion and sin. Now, we look at this text and we say, oh yeah, that's stiff-necked people. But hold on just real quick. Let's not judge the Israelites too quick. Like they're just bad people back then and we're just so good. No, no, no. We are just like them. This is a case study of the heart. 
We forget just like them all too much, and we are sinners, the Bible declares. In fact, their events, when written, were written for us as a mirror. Remember James chapter 1, it says, it's like a mirror to examine your own heart. Or the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 through 12, specifically speaking, not only of this event, but the whole like venture in that chapter of examples of the Israelites. He says, now these things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. You ever wonder why? Like, why did God expose that? Is it just to shame them? No, it's to save. We need to walk in light. And he, they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, the Bible says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So we can't be so quick to be like, oh, isn't the Israelites, isn't they stiff-necked people, so struggling? No, we are all like the Israelites that struggle, not trusting God, making idols, children of wrath. It is you, it is I as well, even as God's people, and especially, shame on us for being God's people in the new covenant, still walking out in the flesh at times. When we know the prophecy fulfilled, when we've seen Jesus die and rise again, Tony Murda says this, What is idolatry? Idolatry is putting something or someone in the place of God. Anything you seek to give you what only Christ can give you. Joy, security, peace, meaning, significance, identity, and salvation. Become an idol. Many do not believe idolatry is a problem because they only associate idolatry with shrines, temples, or carved images. But heart idolatry? Well, it exists everywhere. Common idols include money, sex, a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, beauty, brains, and success and ambition. Now, when you put it in this way, we can see that idolatry still exists today, not just in carved images, but things in our hearts. When we put our hope, our security, our trust, our something else other than into God, And we tend to do this more than what we like or than what we think. This is why John, at the end of his letter, talking about how much Jesus loved us, in John 5.21, he says, Little children are Christians, beloved. Keep yourself from idols. The warning is to us, Christians. Keep yourself from idols. I like what David Guzik said. He said, It is possible to begin the Christian life trusting Jesus, And then at a later time to trust oneself or one's own spirituality. Following our own gods is no better for us than it was for ancient Israel. Because what does the Bible always exhort us to do? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Make your path straight. Don't live by sight. Live by faith. Trust God alone. Now, in verse 10 through 14, we see God gets mad at this. He gets angry. He gets upset. Moses intercedes, and God relents. God is not okay with sin. This is what you need to know. People are like, oh, God of the Old Testament, he's different than God of the New Testament. No, he's not. Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead, all sin. It grieves God's heart. And he has every right to be just and to judge sin, And this is what's happening here. The judgment of God. God is saying, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm mad. I just did all of this and stuff. Moses, though, sees the situation. He intercedes. And there's a beautiful, amazing thing where it says God relents. Verses 10 through 14. Continuing this story. Now, therefore, God says, let me alone. That my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Speaking of Moses. But Moses, well, he implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this uh, disaster against your people. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said, I will multiply your offspring as stars of heaven and the land that I have promised. I will give to you offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This scene is pretty bad. God tells Moses, hey, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. God at this point was going to allow his wrath to consume them, to judge them, and to start over with Moses, which still would have fulfilled that covenant promise. God, remember, he is just. And the Bible says there is a price for sin. The wages of sin is death. It's like we almost forget like we don't need mercy. Like God is bad if he actually follows through with what is righteous. This is who God is. He's holy. He's just. He even warns. But there is consequences. There is a wage for death. And we deserve hell. We don't deserve saving. If God does nothing, we're toast. We're done. We're we're damned. We have to be caught in our sin. And this is the consequence. God's like, you know what? Let them alone. You want to turn your back to God? It's a scary thing. To be left alone in your own sin, in your own way, in your own ability, in your own flesh, it will not turn out well for you. Remember, God was going to judge the nation for their sin, their sin. And this term, let them alone, it's a clear impression that if Moses did nothing, the plan of God would still go ahead, but not in a great way. So Moses, he pleads with the Lord. He prays. He prayed according to what he believed to be the God's heart. And so Moses, what he does is he goes on behalf of the people and he intercedes and he prays. And here's a crazy thing. God answers him. God said, I'm going to do this. Moses prayed and God didn't do that. And here's a cool thing. Moses' prayer, it wasn't that long. Like we just read it, you know, there's like long prayers and the priestly prayer, Jesus, a whole chapter and all this stuff. It's like four verses. I wrote this down. We don't need long prayers, but rather faith-filled prayers. Our prayers make a difference and it's not the length sometimes, it's our faith and what we're praying and putting our object in those prayers. F.B. Myers, he says, it is not the length, but the strength of prayer that appeals to heaven. It is not the the length, but the strength of the prayer that appeals to heaven. And so Moses' prayer in verses 11 through 14, notice what he, the three things he appeals to in God's nature. The first thing he does is he appeals to God's grace. He appeals to God's grace that is powerful. He had faith that God can work. Not that the people would be good or he would do something well, but that God would work and he would do this work. Moses' prayer in verse 11 says, your people with whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. God, you did this. It was by your grace that you did the work and your mighty hand, not our work. I want to plead upon your grace for your work, God. Then Moses, he appeals to God's glory. And again, this is powerful, that God's will would be done. In verse 12, he says, why should the Egyptians say, and then he goes on to this thing, like, why, why are you going to have everyone in the world clown you? You made these promises, and they won't know this thing. And like, God, we want your glory to be revealed. Don't forget about your glory. We want your will to be done. He appeals to God's grace. He appeals to God's glory. And then he finally appeals to God's goodness, which is, again, powerful. Because he had faith in what God had said. Look at verse 13. Remember, Mo, or remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. God, remember what you said? Your word? Your goodness? Your grace? For your glory? This is an amazing framework for us to intercede for people that we would claim the promises of God. That we would ask God to receive glory to move all of heaven and that we would rely on his grace and not our works. 
This is what Moses is doing. He's pleading for God's grace, saying, you did the work. You brought him out of Egypt. He's saying, God, be, the, be glorified. Don't let these, these pagans, the Egyptians, talk bad about your name. Let your will be done. God, God, you are so good. You are so powerful. Your word says this. We could trust in your word. We trust in you, your character. You're good. So would you just save? Beautiful framework for us to lean in and to intercede. And here's the crazy thing. Moses prays. God relents. He doesn't pour out his wrath and wipe them out. Now, this is a very confusing thing, especially when you think about the sovereignty, God, free will, and all this different stuff. And I will tell you this, a lot of commentators try to skirt away from this issue. You know how you ever do that? You're like, okay, I can't can't wait till that preacher that comes to that passage. And then the preacher comes to that passage, says like two things and then moves on. Pretty much a lot of commentaries do that. But let me give you some insight, because I actually found this is more fascinating, the whole idolatry thing, is that God relents. Some translations, which are actually off, like New King James would say repents. But we know biblically God does not repent of evil. He is perfect and righteous and holy in character. He is the only good and just one. There is no one good besides who? God. So what's the deal? Does God change his mind? I mean, after all, he is a person. We need to understand that God's will can be played out in many different ways. And God was actually going to rebuild a people through Moses, which still would have fulfilled the promise, but it wouldn't have been the way that he desired or wanted. But Moses interceded. So it changed the path of that promise being fulfilled. David Guzik puts it this way. He said, Moses' prayer did not change God, but it did change the standing of the people in God's sight. The people were now in a place of mercy when before they were in a place of judgment. Just sort of like how we as believers were in a place of judgment and we called and cried out to God and then he gave us mercy. God had every right to say, hey, I'm going to judge these people because they had sinned. But then faith and prayer changed, and instead of now judgment, there is mercy. You know, Jonah, that story, that's one of the reasons why Jonah was so upset. Because Jonah got, by God, God told Jonah, go and preach to those Ninevites and tell them, it's all going to go down. You done. Judgment's coming. And he's like, I don't even want to say that. Because if I say that, these racist, evil people, they may repent and they will actually change your mind because prayer is that powerful, God. No, I'm not going. Finally, he goes, you know the story, rebels against God, goes in the water, goes down the belly of a fish, pops out looking crazy, goes and preaches. It's a simple, crazy, not good, exegetical preaching of the gospel. Y'all are going to die. Good luck. Walks out the way. They repent. What happens? Judgment doesn't come for the people. And Jonah gets upset. I knew it, God, because I know your character. I know your will. And I know that you'll stand with mercy if people pray and heaven will move. And rather than judgment, you'll give mercy because that's in your nature. One commentator said Moses used these terms sort of to describe divine action, which is why he wrote in verse 14 that God repented. That Hebrew word repented means to grieve or to be sorry, to be upset and grieve and and to have God desires that no one should perish, but all should come to know him. Or in Genesis 6-6, before the flood, he grieved. He was sorry that this action had to take place, that judgment was coming. Or like in 1 Samuel 15, 29, in that story, it describes God's change of approach in dealing with his people. You see, God's character doesn't change, but God does respond to prayers and confession of people. And so how and what he does and how he responds to people is different depending on what they do. Because he does give free will in the midst of his sovereignty. He responds to people's faith. 
Jesus was blown away and people didn't have faith. He was like, I can't even work right now. What, what are you guys doing? You, you didn't see all the miracles? You didn't see all this different stuff? Like, God responds to us asking. He even tells us to ask. He tells us to pray. He relents. And it's an important understanding of this scripture because it teaches us that God wants us to pray and to intercede. Your prayers make a big difference. Will there be judgment? Will there be mercy? God invites prayer for us to pray and for things to be done on earth that is in heaven. And here's a cool, amazing little tip that biblically we see if we interpret Scripture with Scripture, like Ezekiel chapter 33. It's a story about the watchman, and it teaches us this principle that God promises judgment. When God promises judgment and a declaration of judgment, it's an inherently meant to call men to repent and pray. It's almost like as an invite. I'm going to bring judgment, but you know my character. If you want mercy, just call upon me. I'll oppose the proud, but I'll give grace to the humble. If you left alone by yourself, you know what I'll do, but do you want me to move in that situation? This is why many scholars say that this is also not only just a test for the people of their faith, but a test for Moses. What would he do when God says, no, they're your people and I will judge? God was using this situation to develop Moses' heart and Moses' faith in inviting him to intercede and saying, hey, Moses, I know we're having this mountaintop experience, this relationship, but you know you're, these people right here, they're your people and um, I'm going to do something about it because they're sinning. What are you going to do about it? I wonder if God often is inviting us to pray and to intercede as we watch the news, as we're affected by the evil in this world, as we see people sin and deserve judgment. I wonder if that's God's Spirit giving us the eyes to see and saying, will you pray? Will you do something about this? You see, when, God, when God reveals sin to the people of Mo, uh, the, the sins of the people to Moses, it seems like it's an invitation for him to respond in prayer and his prayers work. Can I just propose something to you? Could it be when you see sin and when you see evil, which are revealed by the Spirit, are actually invitations for you to respond in this generation? So when you see politics and leaders corrupt, is that an invitation of 1 Timothy 2 to pray for them? When you see gossip about people's bad behavior, is that an invitation of praying for heart transformation and people to get saved? For God to give mercy and forgiveness to come. I was reminded of this passage in Romans 12, 21, thinking about our society and how people just complain and they talk about it. But Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And it is a good thing for God's people to pray and to intercede because all of heaven moves when we pray. Because things change. Things shift when we pray. 1 John 5.14 says he listens and responds to our prayers. And what is happening in this situation right now? Because Moses prayed, everything changed. God responded. So he relented. God can relent. God can bring revival. What do we see and how do we respond? But we see that there is still always a price to pay for sin. And that's what verse 15 through 35 teach us. Moses starts to lead in this situation. And let's read 15 through 20. It says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. And the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God ingrained on the tablets. Again, Christian, be confident that God has spoken to us and written things down from his word. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, I was Moses' assistant in the halfway in the mountain, Moses going down, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Because remember, that was his mindset. He didn't have that revelation, but 
Moses said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Wow. Moses comes down from the mountain, sees why God is so angry, has a righteous anger, gets so mad he throws the stones down from God that he just received. Now, Zechariah 11.10 shows us that this was actually a sign that the people broke the law and that this was a serious sin. Warren Wiersbe said the breaking of the stone tablets was a symbolic act that Israel had broken the covenant and would have faced discipline. This is a crazy picture of sin because it was Jesus, the living word, that was beaten and broken for you and I sin. That we should never take sin lightly. There's always a consequence for sin. And just as these tablets got destroyed and broken, so our Savior got destroyed and broken for our sins. We don't just say, oh, sin, he forgives. No, this grace was with a price. God's riches at Christ's expense. And so Moses now next destroys the golden calf in his righteous anger and makes the people drink it. Now this shows us the appropriate response in dealing with idols. Idols aren't to be managed, but to be completely destroyed. Idols aren't to be managed. You destroy them. You get rid of them. This is a serious act. And so Moses now is going down. He's taking care of the idol. And now he's going to go rebuke Aaron, his brother, the leader. And so he deals with Aaron in verse 21 through 25. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Again, it's a great sin. It's horrible when we rail against God. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they have sent on, uh, set on evil? For they said to me, make gods who shall go before us as for this Moses, or as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We do not even know what has become of him. Is he coming back? I mean, we know about the whole biblical thing about 40 days, 40 nights. They didn't know anything. They're just left alone like, what's going on with this guy? They were to delay. So they said to him, verse 24, let any of you who gave gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> Come on, guys. This is amazing. Laura and I were talking. She's like, this is the funniest verse in the Bible right here. <laughs> okay, okay. So, like, I threw it into the fire, and I don't know, out came this calf. I just, I don't know. Okay, let's just back up. Let's just go back to the text. It's our Bible study. He, we all know this is not true. You remember? Let's read verse 4 says he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it, sculpted it, did some work. Oh, he did it with a graving tool, picked up the tool, fashioned it, did some work, and then he made a golden calf. And God's like, yeah, I saw that, bro. And now I'm telling Moses, now he's confronting you. This was an excuse. That's what this is just like the garden, just like our nature. Adam, no, 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 the woman made me do it. Eve, no, 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 the servant made me do it. Aaron, it just came out. Give me a break. But isn't this what we do when we sin? We make excuses for our sin. Aaron and Hurd had the responsibility to lead when Moses was absent, Exodus 24, 14. And they failed. That's what this is. Moses said this was a great sin, verse 21. Deuteronomy 9.20 tells us that, that God was actually going to destroy, destroy Aaron with these people, but Moses prayed. Even God acknowledges this is sin. Why is this so important for us? Because we never overcome sin by excuses. That's not how it works. That's in our nature, but the Bible tells us to confess. 
meaning to come alongside and agree with what God has said about what is right and to acknowledge and to repent, to pray. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it wasn't just Aaron who needed to repent, the leader, but the people as well as they sinned. Verse 25, did we read verse 25? And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose. Aaron let them break loose. They broke loose. Some translations, the New King James says, they were a people, these people were unrestrained. They broke loose. They, they did whatever they wanted to. This is trying to show us the great problem of not following God's ways, how it is sin. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no prophetic vision or God's revelation or law, the people cast off restraint. The people were unrestrained. But the Bible says, blessed is he who keeps the law. We see a world and a culture right now that has been broken loose. A people unrestrained and not following God's word, and it is not a pretty sight. The world is suffering as people are worshiping false gods, idols, and being ruled by their flesh and their heart. And Romans 1 tells us this, that they are claiming to be wise, they have become fools and exchange the glory of the inner mortal God for images or idols resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creepy things. You see, what is wrong with our culture, our world, our society is a sin problem. It's the depravity of man, the rebellion against God. It's the same problem we all face, and the only way that we can fix our culture, our society, our nation is repenting and following Jesus and asking for him to save us. Not a political leader, not social justice, not making excuses. David Guzik said this, there is no greater uh, there is no greater danger than for people to cast off restraint and do whatever seems right in their own eyes. The darkest days of Israel's nation historically were characterized by the phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, Judges 17, 6. You see, when man follows their heart, their own ways, Proverbs 14, 12 says, it leads to ruin, great ruin. And this is why the Lord disciplines us and corrects us. But before he judges and disciplines, he invites the people to repent. Read verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Who's on the Lord's side? Come. Come. There was an opportunity for the Israelites to repent and affirm their covenant to the Lord and to acknowledge sin, but only the Levites responded to the call. You see, it makes sense to be on the Lord's side, who is the creator, who, who is this great redeemer, who is this great and mighty God, but it requires something of us as humanity, repentance, repentance. Being on the Lord's side re requires people to make a decision, to take action, and to separate themselves and their allegiance. Repentance. This is what the Levites did. They, they made a decision. I I'm going to be on the Lord's side. I I'm going to go to you. I'm going to take action. I'm going to separate myself from these people. I'm going to go and follow you. And so Moses tells the Levites to discipline and judge the nation. Verse 27 through 29. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to the foe uh, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses that the day, uh, that, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The Levites now are told to punish the people 
which seems to be the leaders because it says they went from gate to gate and that's where the officials would go. So they actually not kill the entire nation or slaughter them, but 3,000 people are punished and killed and their sin of rebelling against God didn't end well. Now at first, again, this is a long chapter because there's a lot of things you're like, whoa, this seems at first very harsh. But God wants us to know this. I wrote this down. There are real consequences for our sin. There are real consequences for our sin. Even when there's opportunity to repent and mercy. But it was in God's mercy that he didn't wipe out the, all of the people. Which would have been just and fair. He wasn't going to approve of their sin. And he wanted to teach them. In his love, he disciplines the nation right now by letting them know there's a price for sin. One commentator said, leaving idolaters in the land would have threatened the preservation of the truth and salvation of future generations. Or like 2 Corinthians 5.6 says, a little leaven corrupts the whole loaf. So God disciplined the nation and it was for good and for holiness. You see, discipline or consequences are an important part of our development of faith. When you sin, it's actually a good thing that you can reap what you sow because God wants to bless us when we obey and he always loves us. But yet, if we fall short, we need to see our own sin and that there is a great price for that. And God lovingly disciplines those of us that are his own for the sake of holiness. I want you to just imagine, can you imagine if, if God's spirit didn't convict believers? If, if he didn't correct you? This wouldn't be for your very own interest for you as a child to just do whatever you want in your lack of development, to just take sin lightly. To live without restraint isn't true freedom, the Bible says. What is true freedom? To walk in God's ways. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When you're submitting to Him, there is freedom. The gospel frees us from the slavery of sin and God transforms our hearts and makes us new so we're able to what? Walk in holiness and in righteousness. He is a God of love and He even disciplines those that He loves. Hebrews 12, 10 through 11 says, For they, speaking of earthly dads, discipline us for a short time as it seems best to them, but he disciplines us for good, and he knows, guys, what is best for us, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Maybe this is why Charles Spurgeon said, God never permits his people to sin successfully. God loves you too much to, to let you sin successfully, to let you go down that path of corruption. And so lastly, in verses 30 through 36, Moses tries to take responsibility for the sins of the people. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. We've heard that over and over again. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, At last, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. We see that same sort of attitude with Paul, the apostle. But the Lord said to Moses, Listen, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nonetheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Moses tries to take responsibility, but God says, listen, we all need to give a personal account for our own actions. Verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot. This is important for us to hear because Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to live once, die, and then give an account. You, you can't be on the tail end of your faith and rely on the faith of your spouse or your friend or your parents. God will judge us personally. Personally. Here's the bad news. We're all guilty. Judgment isn't on a scale. We too often think, well, well the good needs to outweigh the bad, and so I, if I even have a chance. No, the standard is perfection and God's perfection. We, 
tend to compare ourselves to others to make us either feel really good or sometimes we compare and sort of feel really bad. But again, others aren't our standard. God is. And if we break just one law, the Bible says we are guilty. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And so the bad news is Moses wasn't a good enough leader or interceder. As he says in verse 30, perhaps, perhaps I could make an atonement for you. You ever feel that way? Well, like perhaps, if I'm just good enough. What does Moses represent? The law works. If I'm just good enough, God, if I, if I could just do this, if I can get over, perhaps I'll be good enough that God would even let me in. And I want to tell you that no amount of religion or doing good works will atone for your sin. You can't excuse it, and you will have to give an account for it. And so a plague came to the people. That's the bad news. But the good news is we have a leader, Hebrews says, that's greater than Moses. And in the new covenant, it's not a covenant of the law or works, but of grace. Jesus didn't say perhaps. He said, I will. John 5 24 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And Jesus gives us this forgiveness and eternal life, not by our works or religion or the law, but by grace. He lived a perfect life that we could not live. And on the cross, he paid a record of debt that we were supposed to pay and gave us his righteousness. God is able to justify because he is also the justifier and he exchanged his life for ours and fully atoned for our sins and said, I will to telestai, it is finished. You can trust me. You can bank on it. Now perhaps put your eternal security, don't excuse it, bring it to me. And he deals with it completely and wholly. And this is why our hope is in Jesus and his grace alone. Or to put it another way, John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We need to decide and choose. Will you relate to God with judgment Or will you call out to God and have him relent to give you mercy? May we be reminded today that it is foolish to worship anyone other than Jesus. And that despite our sin and tendency to worship idols, God still loves us and invites us to come to worship. Man, people need to know if they want to get saved, they can. They can call upon God. There's freedom in Jesus. And so let's close with communion. Let's cry out and say it's only and forever only Jesus. And he tells us we can come to him based on grace and confidence. I wrote this down. Let's remember our sin and how horrible it is. I find so often people don't want to talk about sin in the church. They want to talk about hell. They don't want to talk about all that stuff. Why? Because in their gut, they're trying to atone for their own sin. They're trying to repay God and be better. And they're in this constant state of perhaps. Is it taken away? Am I truly forgiven? But let's remember God and his great love. That we can have confidence of our salvation today, not by what we've done, but our faith in who God has sent, Jesus. That we can be worse than we ever could imagine. But God's grace and love is far better than we can ever imagine hope for. Amen? So let's celebrate. Let's close in communion. We're going to sing this one song. It's been a beautiful song. It's called I Plead the Blood. It's the only thing that can wash away our sins. God's full atonement, his body broken, beaten for us. Just like the the tablets got beaten and they got crushed. By his stripes we are healed. He was beaten. He was broken for us and we can come to him And we can receive that over and over and over again. There is no other name besides Jesus in which we were saved. So let us remember his grace and let us put our hope in him today. God, we thank you so much for, again, your word. Lord, it's hard to look at sin in our own nature, in our own flesh. 
But Lord, we need to because no matter how great our sin is, your grace is greater because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jesus, there is no condemnation in you. We don't have to do good or try harder. We need a new nature. We need to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God because we need to be covered in Christ. That's where our blessing is. That's where our hope is. That's where our strength is and our ability. God, let us see how foolish it is to walk in our own ability and strength. Even as Christians, we can lean back and have different idols of the heart. But Lord, we trust in you and put our hope in you alone. And so Lord, let us rejoice. To tell us, it is finished. I pray that you would build our faith as we have confidence in you and take communion. We would celebrate that we don't have to live in a lack of confidence, but in belief in you. And we have a firm foundation. One that we can trust in for all eternity. So we trust in you once again, God. We plead to you. We plead the blood. We ask God for you to continue to atone, for you continue to give grace. For it is upon grace, upon grace that we come week after week to remind us what you've said through your word and to worship you continually. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Pastor Daniel Williams at Redemption Church in Delray Beach. Thank you so much for listening to that message. We pray it was an encouragement. It was a blessing to you as we love to pursue and to proclaim Jesus together. And so no matter where you're listening, whether it be YouTube or our podcast, you can go to more resources at redemptiondb.com and even partner with us in ministry to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. God bless you. And thank you so much for listening.